Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Growing up, Omar Tate relied on his corner store for groceries. 
And yet, shopping there was a really terrible, sometimes even dangerous, experience. Being scrutinized, being looked at, being questioned in my own neighborhood, you know, in stores where these people see us every day. Over the last few years, Omar has built a new kind of corner store, one that has quickly become vital to his neighborhood of West Philadelphia. At least three different people from three different cultural backgrounds have come into the store and have thanked us for providing access to something as simple as just an onion. They don't have to walk as far for an onion. So what's the meaning and future of the corner store? That's coming up later in the show. First up, it's my interview with cocktail connoisseur Neil Bodenheimer. Neil is the owner of the acclaimed New Orleans bar Cure, also author of Cure, New Orleans Drinks, and How to Mix Them. Neil, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. I'm really, really excited to be on with you. So, New Orleans. I didn't realize that it was the third biggest city after New York and Baltimore in 1840 or 1850. So it was a big deal um, back then. It was. I mean, a really thriving port town. I think that we look at New Orleans today and we and sometimes we wonder why it's so established in our cultural identity in the U.S. And um, I think part of it is that it was a very financially viable city for a long time. Well, it did have the Mississippi. Uh, of course, it had French and Spanish influence. And as you said in your book, it's also been called the most northern city of the Caribbean, which I like <laughs> a lot. So the cultural diversity was much greater than really most other places in the country, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it always has been a melting pot. And I think you see it in our food and in our drink and in so many parts of our culture. I mean, we're not even talking about music. Right. It's just... It's a wonderful city with a really deep and rich heritage, and uh, I feel I feel very proud to call it home. So New Orleans is obviously distinct culturally, but in terms of the cocktail, is there something that defines a real New Orleans cocktail, or is it just specific recipes? I, I think it's a little bit of both. What defines New Orleans cocktails is that you've got this very consistent style of adding very often Peixot's bitters, very often anise. But at the same time, I think that we're very lucky to have some drinks that are totally original, like the Sazerac, you have the Vucare, you have the Ramos Gin Fizz, the La Louisiane, the Raffignac. It's a pretty diverse group of classic cocktails, and it's something that I know that all bartenders in New Orleans are really proud of the fact that, that we have kind of our own canon, if you will. Let's back up a second. Sure. Because I have a, a few basic questions I need to run by you. So the first one is salt. Mm -hmm. I've been adding a few grains of salt to my old-fashioned, my favorite cocktail recently. Uh, does that actually do something, or is that a stupid idea? No, it's not a dumb idea at all. I mean, first of all, a lot of bitters have salt in them, and so it's a nice way to kind of amplify flavors. I, I mean, I've have found very few cocktails that, that aren't improved with a little bit of salinity. Okay, so shaking versus stirring. Now, in the case of a martini, would shaking be very different than stirring? Well, so when you stir drinks, you're looking for, for texture and really controlled dilution. And when you shake a drink, you get a different style of texture and you get more dilution. And so I just think that it's a different drink, and I don't think that it, one is, is better or worse. Um, you, you mentioned ice uh, 
this is really an interesting topic to me. So the mechanical production of ice goes back, I think, to the Civil War. Is that right? It does. And I, and I think that it gets back to something that we talk about a lot today, which is supply chain. And, and certainly during the Civil War, there were no ice shipments coming from Maine or anywhere in the Northeast that were coming down to the South. And so the Southerners had to find a way to make mechanical ice. And the first mechanical ice production happened in the late 1860s in New Orleans. Uh, Vieux Carré, I've never had one. It sounds like this would be a a headache-inducing drink. It has a lot of things in it. What's in a Vieux Carré? So a Vieux Carré is um, red vermouth, rye, brandy, Benedictine, Angostura bitters, and Peixos bitters. So it's really a split base Manhattan with a touch of Benedictine. And with that Benedictine, because it has more sugar, it requires more bitter. And, I, and it's actually pretty well balanced when made right. And uh, if you've never had one, I would highly recommend it. The one drink you would not recommend is the iguana and venison pechuga or whatever. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> it, sounds, I, it sounds beyond description. So um, it is a, it's a festival mezcal, and sometimes they'll run the uh, distillate over raw meat. And this one happened to be iguana and venison, and it tasted of death, like you might imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's some things I'll drink a lot of things and I'll try a lot of things once, but there's some things that uh, once is once is all it is all it takes. I, I guess it would. Um, so let, let's say you order a cocktail and it's not made well. What do you do? Well, I don't know if it's the right thing to do, but I would just not drink the cocktail. A lot of times. I'll read a cocktail menu and I'll know whether I want to order a cocktail there. And I'll take a look as I'm walking in at the bar. And you know pretty quickly a few things to look for about whether this is actually a place where you want to have a cocktail or not. Well, okay. Now tell me, what what are you looking for on the menu and in the bar? So number one, if I see a vermouth on the back bar, I am not going to order a cocktail in that spot. And then number two, if I look at their menu and I see things that have sour mix or don't look like they have fresh ingredients, I'm not going to order a drink from that bar. I I look at ice. I look at glassware. I look at a lot of different things Mm -hmm. and you can just tell whether people are considering the details. So I'm asked all the time, you know, what are the three mistakes most home cooks make and how can you quickly improve your cooking? So if I turned that around on you and said, are there a couple of things you notice about people making cocktails at home? they could quickly improve, what, what would they be? Bitters. Uh, I really think that people are afraid of bitters because they don't understand how they work. I think that anytime you use flavor connectors, I mean, it's like MSG in cooking. It's like salt in cooking. Like you need things to amplify and to connect. And I think once you learn how to use bitters, they are your best friend in cocktails. So is there a recipe, something that I'm not probably familiar with or most listeners are not familiar with, you think, you know, is it the Sazerac? Is it the Fizz? Is there a drink that most of us have not had we should have? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I would say that there are a lot of drinks in this book that most people have not had. There are some obscure New Orleans drinks that are are wonderful, but 
I think everybody should know how to make a Ramos Gin Fizz, and we go into a lot of detail about how we make ours. How, how do you make it? So for us, it starts with building the foam, right, building the egg white foam. And then you put in your sugar and your gin, and then you add two cubes to try and make sure that we're getting the dilution right because you can get a little watery if you shake too long. And then we add the cream because the cream's going to expand. And then we add a full shaker of ice and shake for like 30 seconds, not for the, you know, 5, 10, 12 minutes that, that the Ramos Gin Fizz has been famous for. Yeah, I, I read that. I was going like, what? Like 12 minutes to, for yeah. one drink? Yeah, really? that's what they used to do. I mean, they just huh. had a line of people that were just shaking. Huh. You know, you go to the Imperial Cabinet or the Stag and someone would start it and start shaking and pass it down and you go pick it up at the end. But I mean, the, the cool thing about the Ramos Gin Fizz is that it really is this, it's it's a unique proposition and it's a lot of things that don't go together, but when you put them all together, it's just wonderful. Neil, it's been a pleasure. I, I got to run out and get a Ramos Gin Fizz. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Neil Bodenheimer. He's a New Orleans-based restaurateur and author of Cure, New Orleans Drinks and How to Mix Them. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, and I'm ready to hear what people want to know. Let's open up the phone lines. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Palm. Hi, Palm. Where are you calling from? From Mount Desert, Maine. How can we help you today? I've gotten into making croissants at home. Yikes. And I actually find it quite pleasurable. Um, Laminating, all of that goes great. And then I think I'm not getting the rise done correctly because I see in some places people get a wobble in their croissants before they go in the oven. And I can't get it to wobble. So when you talk about wobbly for people who don't know, the thing is with croissant, you don't want to touch them. You don't want to lose any volume at all. So you have to sort of shake them and see if they're doubled. So what we're talking about is the final rise. After you shape the croissant, you need to put them into a moist environment. The New York Times has a wonderful video by Claire Saffitz, S-A-F-F-I-T-Z, What Claire does is a large skillet of boiling water, and she puts that in and closes the door, obviously, before she starts to Mm -hmm. shape the croissant. And I believe in her case, it was about two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. How did your croissant taste and look? They look fantastic, and they tasted great. But I was wondering... Then don't worry about the wobble. (laughs) To hell with the wobble. You know? I, I don't know. Chris, do you have any thoughts? First of all, I applaud you for doing it. I yeah, think me too. I think it's fabulous. Well, you're from Maine, right? So are mm-hmm. you dealing with a pretty cool kitchen when you do this? A lot of the times I'm kind of doing this in the middle of the night. Okay. I make a lot of pizza dough, and I find in a cool kitchen that the rising mm-hmm. times can be 100% longer. Yeah. Another thing you can do, it's a little dicey, but you can turn your oven on to the lowest setting for about 10 minutes and then turn it off and let it sit 10 or 15 minutes. And so it's a proofing box, but it's going to be a little warmer. It is a little tricky, but I think that would also be something to test. I've tried that. 
and I had some butter leakage. Yes. As I said, that's uh, walking on the wild side. The other question I have is yeast. What kind of yeast are you using? Caputo's instant dry yeast. Okay. I think it's about temperature because I know that when making pizza, it's all about temperature and you know, 65 degrees versus 75 degrees makes a huge difference. I, that would be, yeah. I think Sarah's right, the cast iron method from Claire Saffitz, who, you know, from Bon Appetit fame, that would definitely solve the problem. I think your standards are too high, too. I think you're making beautiful croissant. You just can't admit it. Are they nice and, <laughs> and crackly and crispy on the outside and soft on the inside? They are. Okay. Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, it sounds like you're 9.8. So I think you're good. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, Bomb, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, hi, uh, this is Joseph O'Kelly calling from uh, Sugarland, Texas. How are you? Good. Yourself? Uh, pretty good. How can we help you? Um, apparently living in Texas, as I said, but I'm originally born and bred and grew up in the west of Ireland uh, in Galway. And, you know, when I first came to the States, I learned about corned beef and cabbage, but had never, ever eaten it in Ireland. <laughs> of course. We made something up here, right? Yeah, well, and, and, you know, if I was at home and I was going to cook something like that, I'd be doing bacon and cabbage where, you know, a very popular uh, style of cured bacon. It's something that I've always wanted to try and make at home. And when I read, this bacon is done by something called the Wiltshire Cure, which is a wet cure. So my question really boils down to, you know, do you know or have you tried doing any kind of a wet cure like that to create this boiling bacon? I've done some curing, but this is not my area of expertise. My understanding is maybe you can help me. I don't think this is bacon cut from the belly. I think this is more from the back or shoulder. And I think it's leaner than typical American bacon. A friend of mine, Meathead Goldwyn, has a website called AmazingRibs.com where he has a recipe for making Canadian bacon. I think Canadian bacon is very similar, but it's smoked. And your bacon is not smoked. Is what you're familiar with meatier than American-style bacon? Well, yeah, so I should have clarified that. When we talk about bacon, we're talking about all cuts of pork. Um, it could be like a ham cut. I see. They are brined in big, you know, in a joint. Right. This is not slicing bacon. And, yeah, so Canadian bacon is a pretty close cousin. If you go to an Irish retailer online and you buy an Irish-style bacon product, 99 times out of 100, it's coming from Canada. And their curing process is similar, I believe to the Wiltshire Cure. So they're just brining it, essentially, right? Yeah. So the recipe you tried was just a brine? What happened? Uh, It's a brine using um, the Prague salt, Mm -hmm. pinky color. I tried, I got, uh, maybe I'd use the wrong joint. I used a loin, which is not very fatty. No. I would think that probably is the wrong cut because it's so lean. Yeah. So the Irish bacon is just a brined, cured pork. Pork. So it doesn't have to be a particular cut. No, no. It just sounds like it's a standard brined pork yep. recipe, right? I mean, Sarah, I mean. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And I also agree that the pork line is just too lean. I would right. go with shoulder. And I think okay. you'd have much better result. Or corned beef. No, I'm just joking. So so, so, <laughs> so, let me ask you about corned beef. So is corned beef just something that's not eaten, really, in Ireland? It's not that popular. You'd have to look to find that right. style of brisket. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, it's possible that you'll get 100 calls tomorrow saying, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. We eat corned beef all year round. <laughs> but I grew up, I never saw it and never ate it. What else did you find that we've completely gotten wrong about Irish food and culture? 
Well, I, I once spent uh, St. Patrick's Day in New York City in an old bar called Foley's next mm-hmm. to Radio City Music Hall. Uh-huh. And they were locked down and you had to, you know, you had to know the owner to get in. And I was sitting there having a pint of Guinness. There's a tradition of the American police band coming in and standing on the counter and doing their shtick with their bagpipes and everything. And the right. hills and I said to these guys sitting beside me who were crying into their pints at this side of this, I said, what has this got to do with Ireland? This is all Scottish stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love dear. that story. Oh, dear. I was yeah. leave there intact. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, smart move, right? right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, okay, well, next time I have corned beef and cabbage, I'll just remember that it's a... Made-up thing. <laughs> completely made-up <laughs> right. American thing. I wouldn't say it's made-up. Looking into the history of it, you know, beef was something that if you were a peasant in Ireland in the 1800s, you couldn't afford. That right. was reserved for the landlord's table. Right. Um, and so you, you relied on your own pork, and you had to cure it to keep it, because it wouldn't right. last. Right. And as the immigrants went to America, they discovered I beef see. was much more I see. in supply. Beef was cheap, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you for calling. We got a history lesson, too. Thank yeah, you. we did. Take care. <laughs> okay. Okay, guys. Right. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to take your calls. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Ben. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Not bad. Maybe we can help you. What's your question? Well, this is actually my third time talking to you guys now. I am the falafel guy. Oh, (laughs) yeah. You're the falafel guy. All right. Yep. I called a few months ago. You know, we were all kind of stumped about how to get, you know, the crispy falafel. And I have good news. I think, for the most part, we've got it figured out. Okay. Tell us. Tell us. We're on the edge of our seats. (laughs) I'll tell you. So here's what made the difference. First off, I switched the recipe a little bit. I know, Sarah, you had recommended a recipe by Inot Admini probably like a month ago. My mom got me a cookbook from Anissa Halu called Feast. That's a great book, yeah. It is fantastic. I did use the falafel recipe. I doctored it a little bit, just used the parsley, I think. It Mm -hmm. called for cilantro, but I basically kept it the same. It calls for fava beans and chickpeas. But I just stuck with the chickpeas. Yeah. And once I did that, it was pretty much the same recipe, kept everything the same, didn't add any flour to it. But what really made the difference was what you guys had recommended, frying it on a little bit of a lower temperature for a little bit longer with uh, neutral oil other than canola. Once I used the grapeseed oil, let it go for a little bit longer, lower temperature, they came out super crispy. Super fluffy on the inside, and they were actually like crunchy, exactly how I wanted them to be. You know, what's really interesting is that since we spoke, we actually, one of my editors was in Jordan, and we developed a recipe as well. It's exactly the same as yours. We use a lot of herbs, parsley and cilantro. You just use parsley, just use chickpeas. We refrigerated them for three hours Mm -hmm. before we fried them, but we also used a 325 oil instead of a 370 oil. Do you use any leavener in yours, by the way? Any baking powder soda? Baking soda. I'd have yeah. to check the book again. You know, maybe it was baking powder. I think it's baking, baking powder. powder. Yeah, because yeah, there's probably. no acid yeah. in there. Yeah. yeah, I think you came to the same conclusion we did. And boy, I have to say, especially with the chopped parsley, I don't know how much you use. We use quite a lot. 
It was just very light and fluffy inside and crisp on the outside. Well, yay. Yeah. Ben, that's Great a, minds think news. alike. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm so appreciative of everything. Oh, and one more thing. Sure. You joked last time that I should start a falafel podcast, and much to my wife's chagrin, you know, you got in my head, and I'm actually going to be starting a podcast, <laughs> not only about falafel, but, you know, about, like, all the types of cooking. And Good. I like, but definitely about falafel. <laughs> we'll just call it the Falafel Podcast. That's a good name for it. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking Falafel and Beyond, but I won't throw the Falafel Podcast out of there. They're both good. Ben, good luck, man. Yes, and especially with the podcast. Yeah. Sounds like fun. Sounds great. Yeah, thank you so much. You guys take care, and thanks for all your help. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, what does the 21st Century Corner Store look like? That's after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) 
yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mel Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Chef Omar Tate. In late 2022, he and his wife, Sybil St. Odd Tate, opened Honeysuckle Provisions, a community-centric corner store in West Philadelphia, where they sell everything from fresh meat and CSA boxes to coffee cookbooks and chef-made dishes like Ritz Scrapple and reimagined Hot Pockets, Hoagies, and Pop-Tarts. Omar, welcome back to Milk Street. Thanks again for having me. I, I remember our conversation fondly, so I'm thrilled to do this again. Uh... You're a poet, you're a cook, you're an activist. We talked about your honeysuckle pop-ups last time you were on. And I see those as being one kind of activism. But you have this history of, of merging food and activism and art all together. And there was a dish you created for one of your pop-ups, if you could just talk about it, and it's called Black Lung. Sure. Um, the Black Lung dish is called, um, it's actually called Black Lung, a terrarium for black breath. And um, that took place at Blue Hill Stone Barns during my residency there in 2021. That dish was a salad on top of chicken bones covered in a cloche. It looked like a terrarium on top of a piece of concrete. It was actually ceramic cast that looked like a concrete slab that was taken directly from the concrete of my mother's home. And, you know, obviously this is a time of civil unrest. And the dish actually emerged immediately after the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. But it actually became a, a representation of the loss of life across generations, uh, if not centuries, of black bodies and where, where the bodies may have fallen. This beautiful salad on top of concrete was to demonstrate that there's a parallel between these two different, very different spaces, the urban space where I come from and this farm space in, in Terrytown, New York. Um, life exists in both spaces in very different but also very similar ways. It wasn't just about death because the, the terrarium captured the breath. So you recently wrote a piece uh, for the Philadelphia Inquirer about what simplicity means in black food, that black food is often labeled as quote-unquote simple. You write, a perfect dish often began with our feet and our sweat. That's not simple. You also write, how simple is a bag of rice exchanged for government dollars through bulletproof plexiglass? So 
the food itself may be simple, but the context and the history is not. Well, no, absolutely not. I mean, but I don't think that anyone is. But the experience, especially when you think about black people in cities, that experience is often overlooked. I mean, one of the dishes that I also did at Stone Barns was to honor and remember this young woman who was 15 years old named Latasha Harlins, who was murdered in a grocery store in L.A. And her, her murder was the first, not the first, but one of the things that kicked off the L.A. riots. But she went to the store to buy orange juice and bread, you know? When I was growing up as a child, I had a very similar experience going to the store, being scrutinized, being looked at, being questioned in my own neighborhood, you know, in stores where these people see us every day, you know, us, you know, children every day. And these grocery stores become battlegrounds sometimes. So, okay, let's let's talk about neighborhoods. You know, there was a book back in the 60s, which I read, called The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. And she talked about how in Greenwich Village, this is where she lived, the corner store was the anchor of that community. Mm -hmm. And now neighborhoods are lacking what you're trying to put back, which is the sense of a community. why, Why do you think we don't have neighborhoods that are communities like we used to? I mean, honestly, I just think we're too busy. You know, we're all too busy. We have our own individual communities in the palm of our hand. Um, But also, I would say that when I was growing up, I mean, you know, the the grocery stores were hubs. um, Libraries were hubs. uh, Playgrounds were hubs. But the matriarchs in our communities were always present. Mothers, the grandmothers, aunts, you know, they, they were the ones looking after children, telling the news, spilling the tea gathering people around the table, gathering people in the home. So I just think that we've gone through a significant change over the past 40 years um, in our government, in our education, in our institutions, and then also technologically. You can pull out of your home community, meaning like your immediate family, and exist entirely within your virtual community while with your actual immediate family. I think there's, there are deep, deep social fractures because we're just we're still in the infancy of learning how to live with our current technology. So the name of your place is Honeysuckle Provisions. You want to talk about why this is so unusual. I mean, you say it's a grocery store, a takeout spot, a community center, neighborhood hub. I mean, you want it to be an important part of the neighborhood and sort of anchors it, I think, as opposed to just being a place that sells food or makes food, right? Yeah, I mean... How the, how do you do that, right? When you think about this store being rooted in black traditions and, and black foodways, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One, black is often a confrontation in this country. When you call something black, most people, well, not most people, a lot of people are like, well, what is that? So we, we had to make it universal. Um, one of the most beautiful things that have been said since we've opened is that, you know, because we provide fresh groceries in an area that separates four different neighborhoods, at least three different people from three different cultural backgrounds have come into the store and have thanked us for providing access to something as simple as just an onion. They don't have to walk as far for an onion. And to make this place universal, I think the grocery aspect is that one thing. Everyone needs fresh food, right? Um, The other thing is that every single thing across the board tastes delicious, and if it didn't, it just wouldn't be on our shelves. It wouldn't be on our menu. 
And then the beauty of all that is that it just so happens that it's black. I think we talked about this last time, but black food, it depends on where you lived, where you grew up. You know, if you're in Arkansas versus Chicago, out west, east, it's complicated, right? Because there are lots of different definitions of black food. Or, or do you think there is some way to define it in some consistent, homogenous way? Mm, I don't think it's the latter. Um, black food is whatever we're eating, you know? Right. Which is why I feel like the store, if you walk in, it doesn't fit within the, the framing of what one would call black food ways or southern or soul. You know, the southern, the soul, that is the foundation of what we do and how we eat. But, you know, there's intricacies and subtlety there where it really represents the experiences that we have on a daily basis. We make sandwich bread, you know. Um, we make hoagies because we're in Philadelphia, but they're connected to a cultural experience that I had growing up where a hoagie cost a dollar and it was made from terrible ingredients. And so we make a better hoagie with better ingredients. Um, it's connected to Sybil's Haitian heritage and incorporating the diaspora, which is always the constant like ephemeral reminder that this cultural experience that we all share as black people in America goes back further, goes across oceans. You know, it it hops across the water. So I just, I think that uh, black food is definitely um, undefinable and really represents the experience of being an African-American and that it has to be a shapeshifter. It has to be malleable and it has to be imaginative because, you know, it's it's the imagination that continues our, our survival. There's one item on your menu I'm going to take exception with. You, you sell me on this, okay? Mm-hmm. Black-eyed pea vegan scrapple. I, I grew up with scrapple, which I love. Mm-hmm. But c- can I just have real scrapple? Do I really <laughs> need black-eyed pea vegan scrapple? I mean, is it better or is it just different? Why do it that way? If I were to put a blindfold on you and give you a scrapple sandwich and a black-eyed pea scrapple sandwich, you'd say one of them is probably more delicious than the other, and it's probably going to be the Black Eyed Peas Scrabble. Really? I'm not kidding you. And that's, well, that's just because we made it because we had an overabundance of Black Eyed Peas that we grew on our farm at the time. But it really became this, like, unifying thing in our store because we have um, a fermentologist, so there's Black Eyed Pea Miso, what we call Black Eyed Piso, that's made from the same Black Eyed Peas from our farm. Um, there's fresh black-eyed peas in it, then there's cornmeal and oats, and then there's carrot and onion, and it's cooked very simply with just water and seasoning and salt. And It forms and behaves and reacts and tastes almost exactly like Scrapple, almost exactly. Mm. And I think it really exemplifies all the things that we try to do at a practical level at our store, which is like connecting the cultural to the agricultural to the societal cultural, to the food cultural. It, it just perfectly ties all those things together. Well, you got me at the flavor. <laughs> um, so, okay, I go into Honeysuckle Provisions today. What reaction would you like that really gets to the heart of what you're trying to do here? In other words, you, you've had customers come in now for a while. What, what are some of the comments that really make you think like you – made a really good choice here to do this store. Well, I mean, I mentioned the one earlier about, you know, just the accessibility in our location. But the other thing is that it feels welcoming and inviting. Um, People are signing up for 
our food programs like the the Black Farmer CSA. Um, we do Sunday dinners for two that people look forward to. I think that what people really connect to is the organic nature of our store and the intentionality. It feels very intentional, and it is very intentional and personal. You know, many of the things that are in our store come directly from Sybil and I's home. And <laughs> it's funny now because the store is actually our home. We're almost never home. <laughs> so, when you move the mattress in, Omar, then you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've slept there already. I'm sure you have. <laughs> Omar, uh, all the best to you and Sybil and all the best uh, to Honeysuckle Provisions. Thank you, man. Hope to see you soon. That was Omar Tay, co-founder of Honeysuckle Provisions in West Philadelphia. You know, I recently purchased a book of old Vermont photographs and discovered that our nearby town had a library, hotels, restaurants, general stores, and sidewalks that were made out of both marble and slate. Townspeople were photographed sitting on windowsills, watching the world go by right there on Main Street. Today, the main attraction in town is Stewart's, a small hardware store that carries literally everything, an Agway, a restaurant that never seems open, a car repair garage, and a Napa parts outlet. Most of the stunning 19th century buildings have burned down and were rebuilt in a more pedestrian brick. Downtown is now a place to buy gas and wiper fluid, a hammer, or lawn fertilizer. So Omar Tate is right. We do need a place to congregate, to tell our stories, to meet our neighbors, even to iron out our differences. The good news is that place already exists. It's called Main Street. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, gnocchi with pancetta and garlic. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, you and I share two things, a love of Italy, but also a love of cucina povera, mm. which is sort of basic, simple cooking. And you were in Italy and came across a recipe for gnocchi that is even simpler than the simplest recipe I know. I know. It's kind of crazy, frankly. I was in Campania, you know, along the Amalfi Coast, which you think of as quite wealthy, but actually the cuisine of the region is steeped in exactly what you say, cucina povera, kind of making do with whatever you happen to have on hand. And a lot of the kind of classic recipes from this region grew up based on having no time and having no money. So people had to not just make do with what they had, but they had to kind of cook it as quickly as they could or cook it for hours and hours and hours while they were out in the fields and just kind of ignore it. Well, I encountered a variation on gnocchi that uses the quicket as quickly as you can with as little as you can. And this was gnocchi for people who couldn't even afford the potatoes. It uses nothing but flour and water. That's interesting. So besides the frugalness of it, which I applaud, did it make for a worse gnocchi without the cooked potatoes? What is it like? Well, you know, that's the thing. I mean, the perfect gnocchi, of course, is pillowy soft, right? And I was expecting the worst because I was at La Vecchia Cantina, a restaurant in Ravello, and the chef, Antonio Cioffi, started by toasting some flour in a skillet and then just adding water and making what looked, frankly, kind of unappealingly like oatmeal. And I thought, there's just no way that this is going to be light and pillowy like a proper gnocchi should. And he cooked it very briefly in the skillet, then turned it out onto the counter and started working the dough and used the same shaping technique that we would use for potato gnocchi. 
And I was shocked at how good and how light and delicious they were. Frankly, if you had told me they were made with potatoes, I'd completely have believed you. Why wouldn't this end up having the texture of pasta, which is flour and water, essentially? How does it get the lighter texture? He's beating a lot of air into it as he cooks it in the skillet. You know, with a pasta dough, you need it pretty aggressively. And in this case, you know, yes, he works it in the skillet, whipping some air into it. But then once it's on the counter, he really just shapes it. It comes together very quickly. And it somehow just retains that airiness in the cooking. I could not believe how good and how light they were. And he dressed it, you know, any number of ways. Probably my favorite way in the way that we adapted at Milk Street was simply in the skillet with some pancetta, some garlic, olive oil, lemon, and Parmesan cheese. I mean, it was just perfect. You don't want to get an overwrought sauce on something like this. You want to let the gnocchi really shine on their own. And this was just the perfect sauce to do it. He didn't throw some wild boar sauce on his <laughs> no, ragu. No, no, exactly. I mean, there was a lot of flavor, but he still kept it very light. That's really appealing. Gnocchi di farina, just a flour gnocchi with pancetta and garlic. Cucina Pavra from Campania. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. You can get the recipe for gnocchi di farina with pancetta and garlic at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. After the break, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt shares the best ways to use up leftover scallions. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. 
Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah and I will be answering a few more of your culinary questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Mayor. Where are you calling from? From New Jersey. How can we help you today? I have a recipe from a cousin. It goes under the heading of mousse, although it's not a traditional mousse. It's really, really simple. It's made with milk, chocolate chips, egg, sugar, and vanilla. The chocolate chips, the egg, the sugar, and the vanilla go in a blender. The milk gets heated just to boiling and then blend it for a minute. And then you pour it into little ramekins. Put it in the fridge for maybe four hours. It's always been made with Nestle's chocolate chips. And in these later years, it just has refused to set up. It sort of gets to a pudding stage and doesn't get beyond that. I've tried about every kind of other different brand of chocolate chip I can find. Nothing sets up. Wow. That Big is problem. <laughs> that is wild. I have the answer. Do you want to want the answer? Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. Well, pick me. Pick me. All right. All right. Chris is bouncing up and down. I think that, well, I know the chips are full of other things like emulsifiers and lecithin and everything else. And those other ingredients mean that when you melt chocolate chips, they're very different than melting chocolate, right? It's just a totally different thing chemically. I think it's those emulsifiers and other ingredients that made it set up properly in the original recipe. Even if Nestle claims they haven't changed their formula, my guess is they have done something differently. I suspected that the chips might have been reformulated with more sugar and it was That's being, I possible. don't know, hydroscopic. Is that what I would say? Very good. Hygroscopic means it attracts water, <laughs> yes. So what would you recommend to fix it? Let me ask a question. You've tried all the different brands and none of them have worked? There's a small wrinkle to that. At a certain point, I came home with chips from Costco's, the right. Kirkland brand. And they did work. But when I went to buy more, they were off the shelf. And then a little bit later, they hmm. returned to the shelves. Yeah. And they didn't work. Hmm. Wow. This is really, this is like a murder mystery. How much dairy is in the recipe versus how many cups of chips? It's three quarter cups of milk and six ounces, one cup of chips. Well, another thing you might try. I'd increase, you said six ounces of chips. I would increase the uh-huh. chips. Try 50% increase in chips and leave the dairy where it is. If the amount of emulsifiers or whatever's in the chips is less for whatever reason, that might help solve the problem. There's two tablespoons of sugar. Is it worthwhile reducing that? These are sweet chips, right? Yeah, well, semi-sweet. Semi-sweet. Yeah. semi-sweet. 
Yeah, I don't think the sugar is going to interfere. You think with the no, thickening? but you were thinking that we were all thinking that's why. Yeah, it okay. Set up. Yeah, take it down to one tablespoon. Yeah, and the other thing that I tried half-heartedly tried the last time I made this was to not do the full six ounces of chocolate chips, but mix chocolate chips with a chocolate. bar of Ghirardelli. And it didn't work. <laughs> no. Look, the chips are designed not to melt in a chocolate chip cookie, right? I mean, that's the concept. Right, to hold their shape. So they obviously have stabilizers and emulsifiers in them that chocolate does not. So I would expect regular Ghirardelli not to work compared to a chip. I try more chips, use cream, and then cut the sugar to one tablespoon from two. And let us know. This is really interesting. It is. Yeah. I thought I had the answer. Maybe I didn't. All right. I'm very curious. Thank you for your help. Yeah. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milstreet Radio. If you need some inspiration, give us a call, 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Brooke, and I'm calling from Providence, Rhode Island. I'm a huge fan of both of you, and I'm thrilled to be chatting with you today. Oh, good. Well, that's a good start. Yes. Things can only go downhill from here, but <laughs> yes. I'll start at a high point. How can we help you? All right. Well, my question is about pressure cookers. Yeah. I recently got a stovetop model, not the countertop kind that you plug yeah. into an outlet. So my question to you is, do you have tips on how to adapt existing recipes for this type of cooking, both from the traditional oven recipes and from recipes designed for the countertop models? I've made a few dishes that didn't come out great uh, because I don't have a great sense of how long to cook certain proteins or how much liquid to add. I've used stovetop models a lot. The thought is electric models don't get up to the same level of pressure. And then the other thing is people say that some of the steam releases a little more with a stovetop model, so you might add a little more liquid. But I would say all you have to do is keep in mind that a stovetop model might be cooking at higher pressure and cook a little faster. But it doesn't matter that much. I mean, if you're cooking, let's say, a cut-up pork butt or you're cooking chicken legs, if you cook chicken legs 25 minutes instead of 20 minutes, it just doesn't really matter that much. What is it that you were cooking and what was the problem you had? brown rice. It came out kind of dense and gummy. And I also did some short ribs, which the short ribs came out fine, but there seemed to be too much liquid. Just looking for tips on how to fine tune it. In a pressure cooker, you're not going to lose moisture as you cook, and therefore you're going to have a lot of water release. So if you're cooking meat, by the time you're finished cooking it, a lot of the liquids come out of the meat. And that'll happen no matter what kind you use. The thing to do with that is you are going to not add much liquid to start with take the meat out and then reduce down on top of the stove that sauce like you would if you're using a Dutch oven, and then you can finish the sauce with other ingredients. For brown rice, I have a suggestion for you. There's a kind of rice called Gen Mai, G-E-N-M-A-I. It's quote-unquote a brown rice, but it cooks in the same amount of time as white rice in the same amount of water. Oh, good to know. It's fabulous, has a deep nutty flavor, and it cooks like white rice, and that solves your brown rice problem. Sarah? Brooke, did you look at the manual? I did. Because that should be your main point of reference, even though it's probably somewhat limited. There is a book called Cooking Under Pressure. Was it Lorna Sass's book? Yes. And that's the book I used when I was teaching myself pressure cooker. That's a great idea. I myself, and I've been cooking for a million years, wouldn't just take a recipe and say, oh, I'll just try this out in the pressure cooker. I would have a point of reference until I got to know my pressure cooker. 
Well, I can give you a couple of times, though. Chicken, I usually prefer bone-in. It's like 20 or 25 minutes, like thighs. That's just a good rule of thumb. And then meat cut up like a pork butt or shoulder is usually 40 minutes or 45 minutes, something like that. So that's sort of things I keep in the back of my head. Yeah, I absolutely think you need a book. You need a point of reference to start with, and then you'll get wings, and then you'll know what to do. It's like anything else. It's like getting to know your stove. Every piece of equipment has its own quirks, and you just have to... It's like getting married for the first time. Come on. It's like it takes a little while to get used to the idea, and then uh, everything's good, right? Yeah. Hopefully. This has been perfect. Thank you so much. I'm going to try the book um, and stop trying to adapt other recipes, and uh, we'll go from there. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all the advice. All right. Thanks, Thanks. Brooke. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm going to write a book called Marriage is a Pressure Cooker. <laughs> Marriage under pressure. There you go. I like that. Okay. Right. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, let's see what's inspiring J. Kenji Lopez-Alt in the kitchen. Kenji, what's going on this week? Yeah, I've been thinking about scallions, you know, because um, oftentimes, you know, I buy a couple bunches of scallions. I use some for a recipe and then, uh, you know, I have a bunch left. And, and you know, there, there's people who say you can stick them in a glass of water and let them regrow till you have enough to use for another recipe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I find that they kind of lose flavor that way. But what I like to do at home is I make a infused scallion oil. Um, and then, you know, the first time I do it, I use the scallions to cook noodles. But then I have this delicious oil that I can use for any sort of future stir fries that has uh, flavor built into it. So what you do is you take your scallions and you just trim off the root ends uh, and then you you cut them into two inch pieces or so and then slit them lengthwise. And then if you have any other sort of loose onions around, you know, I like to sometimes do sliced shallots. If I have like half an onion sitting in the fridge, I'll do uh, half a white onion or a yellow onion um, or leeks, any sort of allium will work. And then you put them in a wok or a saucepan, cover them with oil or lard, lard is really good for it too. And then basically just over very moderate heat, medium low heat, you let it come up to a sizzle and you stir it once in a while and you just sizzle everything until the scallions start to turn a little bit brown and tender. And then you can strain that out. And then, you know, the scallions that you get out of it have this really nice intense flavor, this really nice sweetness Mm. that comes from the browning. Um, And so what you can do is take those scallions, uh, cook some noodles, you know, something like uh, chow mein style or lo mein style noodles, and then uh, toss them with those scallions uh, with a little dash of soy sauce, uh, a little bit of sugar and those scallions and just a bit of the cooking water. It makes a really delicious dish. But then, you know, the best part is that once you've strained out those scallions, you have... Uh, however much, you know, a cup or two of scallion oil. So next time you're stir-frying and a recipe calls for just a neutral oil, you know, like canola oil or whatever it is, you can use this scallion oil in its place. And so you're kind of layering on flavor from the previous cook. What kind of oil do you use when you're stir-frying or using a wok? Uh, it depends. So either peanut oil um, or something like a rice bran oil. But, you know, and really any oil that that is uh, safe for high temperatures. Um, sometimes if I'm doing a Sichuan dish in particular, I'll use toasted rapeseed oil, hmm. which uh, is difficult to find in the U.S. Um, it's called Kaiziyu, C-A-I-Z-I-Y-U, or Y-O-U sometimes. Um, I've Luckily, I found it in my local market in Seattle at the Chinese market here. Um, but this, yeah, ro- roasted rapeseed oil is sort of an essential flavor of Sichuan cuisine. I often also use lard, you know, just the, the blocks of lard that you can find next to the shortening, especially for noodle dishes or things where you want the oil to kind of stay put on the noodles. You know, lard is a little bit thicker than regular vegetable oil, um, so it tends to coat noodles and things like that a little bit better. But isn't the lard you buy at the supermarket, it's not leaf lard, it's from all over the pig, and it has a very porky flavor, right? It does. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's something that, you know, maybe doesn't go in your apple pie, but it, it works well for stir fries. Yeah, definitely. It definitely has a sort of porky flavor to it. 
So w- one last quick question. If you're going to heat up a wok for stir-frying, do you heat it up without oil in it or with oil in it? So I do it without oil. Um, I've read in various sources, um, both in Chinese and in English, that you know there's this old saying that a hot wok in cold oil means no sticking. Um, what I found is that you can add the oil at the beginning and get your wok nice and piping hot and cook in it, and you won't have any sticking. But the problem is that if you preheat your wok with the oil in it, by the time the oil is actually heated up to the point that you can cook in it, it's already started to degrade, and you'll get some of those sort of burnt flavors, and it'll start right. smoking heavily. So you know, with Western cooking. If you're going to sear or saute something in a skillet, you can put the oil in early on. And then, you know, you know that just when it starts to smoke is when you're at searing temperatures or when it starts to shimmer is when you're at sauteing temperatures. But with a wok, you typically go even hotter than that. So that's why with a wok, what I do is usually I'll take a paper towel, rub just the thinnest layer of oil into the wok. So that way I get a sort of indicator of the temperature. So it'll start to smoke. You know, and once it starts to really heavily smoke, then I know that I'm at stir-frying temperatures. And then after that, I'll add the remainder of my oil and immediately get my ingredients into the wok uh, so that the oil doesn't really have time to break down. Kenji, thank you. Scallions, scallion oil, and uh, a quick noodle dish. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats, a food columnist for The New York Times, and author of The Wok, Recipes and Techniques. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get every recipe, access to all our cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 